listening to a podcast from The National. Although Baghdad declared victory over the group last December, ISIS still poses a threat from pockets along the Syrian border. Today, the terrorist group is a shadow of what it once was, but their spectre remains. The group continues to carry out ambushes, killings and bombings across Iraq. And earlier this year, Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi said his country would take all necessary measures if they threaten the security of Iraq. But the parliament is in flux following elections in May, and former ISIS strongholds such as Fallujah are potentially vulnerable for a terror resurgence. It's worth asking, will Iraq ever be free of ISIS, and is the country prepared to combat the group if they rise again? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina Al-Durubi, and this week we look at Iraq and ISIS. Sofia Barbarani from the National's Foreign Desk recently returned from a week-long trip across Iraq. From Fallujah, where ISIS first rose to prominence, she reports on a city whose people are still recovering from terror. We're in Fallujah, in Iraq's westernmost province, Ambar. The call to prayer rings out through the heaving alleys of the bazaar. Families make the most of the cool evening to do their daily shop. During the day, temperatures hit 40 degrees Celsius, and life slows down. Shops sell fruits and vegetables, expensive golden jewelry, clothing, poultry, and house trinkets, all kinds of house trinkets. Supermarkets are stocked with local and foreign products. Iraqi cheeses, Iranian dates, pots and pots of Nutella. On the high street, families gather to enjoy ice cream and milkshakes. Young men watch the World Cup in cafes. And although a slow reconstruction process, hindered by rampant corruption, means residents are still dealing with poor services, including a poor healthcare system and patchy water and electricity, there's really not much you can't find in Fallujah these days. But this wasn't always the case. In December 2013, Fallujah became the first Iraqi city to fall to ISIS. And until its liberation in June 2016, Ambar's second largest city was largely cut off from the rest of the world. In 2014, a few months after the city fell, the Iraqi army besieged Fallujah in an attempt to drive ISIS out. This meant that food was in short supply and shelling was frequent. Inside the city, ISIS and their reign of terror turned life into a living nightmare for those 50,000 who had been unable or unwilling to flee. Families relied on dirty and unsafe water resources. Medicines were exhausted. There were even accounts of mothers taking their children's lives before committing suicide. The situation was dire. Today, most of those who did flee have returned in hopes of rebuilding their lives and their city. One such person is Dr. Adnan Al-Jumeli, a law professor and the owner of a vast, leafy farm in the town of Karma, on the outskirts of Fallujah. He is a tall man with a thick black moustache, a handsome face, and piercing eyes. Dr. Adnan has a passion for dates. His family has been planting palm trees for three generations. Our grandparents have planted these palm trees in the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, which explains their growth. 
while our parents, including my father, have planted some palm trees in the mid-70s and the beginning of the 80s. In addition, there's the new palm trees that have been planted in 2005 and 2007, and this is the one that we have planted ourselves. Of course, these palm trees come in different types and not just one. It is commonly known that there are more than 300 types of dates. Dr. Adnan returned from displacement two years ago to find that 600 of the 1,000 trees he had planted had been burnt down in clashes between ISIS and the Iraqi forces. He wasn't the only one whose property had been destroyed. During their three-year rule, ISIS cut off the irrigation canals that branched from the Euphrates, providing water to the farms. They did this during the 2014 elections to flood and disable the road between Baghdad and Fallujah as the country attempted to stabilize. Today, the farm is beautiful, but wild in its disrepair, much like the rest of Iraq. There are no farmers to tend to the land. They fled when ISIS took over, and they've not yet returned. Dr. Adnan's vast home is completely empty, looted while he was displaced. An ongoing drought has only added to the agony. But he does not despair. We're repairing, step by step, he says. Just 30 kilometers west of Dr. Adnan's farm, in a large reception hall, two sheikhs from the Halbusi tribe mourn Saddam Hussein. Things were simpler when there wasn't such a vast array of political leanings, they say. Sheikh Jassim was part of Saddam's military forces. He suffered under debathification, the swift dismantling of Saddam's regime by the U.S. It was a movement that crippled Iraq's economy and security, among other things. The Ba'ath regime's core was Sunni, which meant that debathification had a huge impact on Ambaris, such as Sheikh Jassim. Today, many of the grievances that surfaced after the fall of Saddam and helped pave the way for the rise of ISIS are still present in Fallujah. Unemployment is higher than ever. Basic services are poor. Freedom of movement is restricted. A sense of neglect has heightened Fallujah's lack of trust in Baghdad. Meanwhile, the central government is not addressing these problems. Instead, civilians are increasingly turning towards their tribal leaders for guidance. This is widening the rift between the Sunni province and Baghdad. Sheikh Khalil, the Halbusi tribe's top leader, expressed concern over Fallujah's future. He asks, when a father can't feed his family, what should he do? Back in central Fallujah, inside the busy bazaar, Six-year-old shop owner Haji Hassam talks about Iraq's prized fruit, the dates. The superior quality of Iraqi dates was commonly known. These were not only famous regionally, but in the entire world, such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the Gulf countries, Kuwait. Long before our grandparents and ancestors, Saudis, Kuwaitis and Emiratis used to travel to Mecca, the Holy Land, when they needed something, and people used to request them to bring along Iraqi dates. We have the Barhi, the Khastawi, and what we call Hamra and Khiara. These dates were people's favorites. People from the Gulf countries would ask the travelers to bring along a specific kind of dates to get a taste of the exclusive Iraqi date. 
Since when do people from Gulf countries, Iran and the neighboring countries, know anything about dates? Gulf countries have only started planting date palm trees in the early 2000s with uncertainty. Prior to that period, they had no idea how to plant them and neither did they know the different types. Unfortunately, Iraqi palm trees look miserable now for lack of care and control. We are people who have suffered from wars that destroyed us and our farms. Wars have actually harmed our people before our farms. Unfortunately, this is our situation in Iraq. Iraq's dates industry has been affected by the ongoing conflict. The last 18 years saw a precipitous slump in Iraqi date production. This, says Haji Hassim, is inevitable given the precarious state of the country. Years of sanctions, conflict and displacement, coupled with a struggling economy, culminated in a decline in the production and quality of the fruit. While global output of dates increased exponentially between 1978 and 2008, Iraq fell further behind. But it's not just agriculture that has been affected by the conflict. The infrastructure, the services, the morale, the people. Fallujah is resilient, but broken nonetheless. And while the city is no longer under a violent occupation, the threat of an ISIS return is never far away. A recent string of killings carried out by ISIS sleeper cells underscores the fact that Fallujah, and indeed Iraq, cannot yet get too comfortable. As long as Baghdad fails to address the grievances of the city where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's group first rose to power, Fallujah will remain isolated. And this, in turn, will make it an easier target for an ISIS resurgence. That was Sofia Barberani from Iraq. Thanks to Liza Ayash and Saeed Saeed for their help with the translations. Rinad Mansour, a senior research fellow at Chatham House, is an expert on Iraq, and he joined us on the phone from London. I asked him if Iraq has seen the end of ISIS. Quite clearly, I mean, it depends what you mean by ISIS. Certainly, if you mean the end of ISIS as an organization, then the answer is no. Uh, very clearly, you have ISIS uh, in, in different parts of Iraq. It's changed. It's an underground organization. Uh, but very clearly, it still holds pockets in different areas. You know, you see in Kirkuk and Hawija, Salahuddin, Ambar, and elsewhere. Uh, and to some extent, it's even kind of trying to make a resurgence where you see kidnapping of soldiers or truck drivers. Some of the tactics that ISIS or the network that's existed since before 2003, this network, had used to do when it was also an underground organization. But when people talk about the end of ISIS, really... I think what they, they're referring to is the end of the territorial rule of ISIS, or the end of the Islamic State, which is really predicated on the battle in Mosul uh, to, to remove ISIS rule. Uh, so you may have an end to kind of the Islamic State territory, but that has only been a military solution. Um, but you don't have a kind of political, uh, sort of socio-economic political end to ISIS. And so therefore the roots of ISIS quite clearly still uh, existence in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you've just touched upon the roots of ISIS. How can we best, how can we best understand the emergence of this group in Iraq? Yeah, so I think if you want to talk about mission accomplished, um, you, you've had many different times military victories over this organization. 
And I think one of the lessons that you, one should learn is that a military solution isn't the way to get rid of ISIS entirely. It's a way to perhaps, you know, regain territory. It's a way to bring ISIS down, but it's not a way to eliminate it. And that's because, as you say, the political, to the root, sorry, of ISIS are not simply military, but they're political and they're socioeconomic, um, and, and, and they're very much tied to sort of the localities in, in these areas. Addressing the roots of ISIS, and, you know, which are really, as I say, back to the weakness of the state, but also the failures of governance, both at the central government level, but also at the local level and the provincial level, these are really, it's a political solution. It's a political settlement uh, of governance that still hasn't been solved since 2003 in Iraq. Do you think, in, in going back to addressing this issue, do you think that Baghdad is addressing these uh, these socioeconomic issues that caused ISIS to emerge? I mean, issues such as unemployment, poor public services, and lack of trust between civilians. I mean, it was seen in Fallujah in 2003, just before ISIS emerged there. Uh, is Baghdad central government uh, moving forward in, in, or taking steps in addressing these uh, these challenges? I mean, I think quite clearly uh, what we've seen from the recent election, the, rec- the recent national parliamentary election of us, is that there's a huge gap between the citizens and the elite. The, many Iraqi people decided not to vote because they remain completely disillusioned by the political process, which they think does not represent them or respond to their needs in any nature. Um, and when you, you know, when you go around Iraq from Basra to Baghdad to Slemania, through many of the areas, you know, recently liberated areas as well, what you see are, are citizens who don't think, who have very little hope in the current political process. Um, and so, sadly, although the government of Baghdad and many of the politicians know what to say, they know they need to talk about anti-corruption, they know they need to make it look like they're promising better governance. On the ground, Iraqis have, are, have yet to see systematic change or structural change to the political system that was set up in 2003 that has quite frankly failed to meet the needs of Iraqis throughout the country. I'm and touching back on the topic of ongoing um, anti-ISIS operations especially the, the ones that are seen in northern in the north of the country. Uh, Prime Minister Haider Abadi declared victory over the group uh, last December. Do you think he jumped the gun in announcing success? I think the victory, and as I say, there's many times victory declared over this organization that has never ceased to exist. So it's always jumping the gun to declare victory. Um, but nonetheless, I think it was politically motivated. If you look at the context, there was a sort of chance to reunite Iraqis, moving, you know, and, and a chance to rebuild, particularly moving towards the elections. There was this, this idea, uh, you know, and, and if you look not just at the victory, but Abadi called his own alliance the Victory Alliance. Uh, so, so basically, there was this need to make it look like all the fighting, all the lives lost, all the suffering, um, and all the, cas- you know, all the costs, basically, to fighting ISIS led to some kind of victory. And so what it was was the end um, of, as he called it, the phony caliphate, um, or, or the end of the kind of territorial rule of ISIS. But I think you're right. I think that many Iraqis are beginning to doubt or question that call of victory, because how can you have victory if ISIS is still 
you know, committing acts of terrorism and still kidnapping Iraqis, still killing Iraqis. Very clearly, the organization still exists. And so perhaps um, the prime minister and other Iraqis has to be a bit more uh, careful with the terminology they use, um, because providing hope for Iraqis can, can, is, is, is very short term if, if they don't reflect realities throughout the entire country. Yeah, and looking on to the future, do you think we do you think Iraq can see a potential ISIS comeback? What you've seen from uh, you know from as as early as the beginnings of the war in Iraq is that ISIS or this network is a very dynamic organization that can operate under different functions. It can operate under different structures. It can go from being a territory holding kind of uh, attempt at government organization to just a straight-up criminal underground organization. So the question then is, we've seen this in the past, and we've seen cycles of ISIS emerging and then losing, emerging and losing, whether that's al-Qaeda in Iraq, whether that's the Islamic State of Iraq, or most recently, the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, which became the caliphate Islamic State. So according to that trajectory then, if the same mistakes are being made, if the, 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 the roots of this organization are not being addressed, then, then sure, the next time that there's a massive failure of the state or there, there are grievances, there will be room for this underground organization to reemerge. It's hard to say whether that'll happen. It's hard to say, you know, because the, the legacies of ISIS, if you go to Mosul, are so fresh that it's really hard to imagine it reemerging easily. Um, but nonetheless, you know, in a, if in a few years' time, uh, the same problems continue to exist. If the voters, if Iraqis view their sense of disillusionment as tied to the weakness of the, to the central government, then they might look for alternative forms of representation or alternative forms of groups to, to go with. Um, but it's also important to note that sectarianism in Iraq is changing and sort of the gap between the elite and the citizens are becoming more important. So, like, for example, in Mosul, it's not enough for a leader to just say, I'm your, I will protect the Sunnis. Um, and so there are changing trajectories uh, in, in, in these kind of groups. But as I say, ISIS has proven to be a dynamic organization uh, that's a populist organization at times, and so we'll have to see. And it is resurging in certain pockets as well. Thanks to Rinad Mansour and Sofia Barbarani for their insights. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free on Apple Podcasts. And read more of Sofia's coverage from Iraq on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Mina El Durubi. Join us again next week. <laughs>